Hi, I'm Isabel. I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast, created together with my colleague Min Lo. In this podcast, we touch upon specific issues around finance, business, and sustainability. So, more and more companies have committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050, in line with the Paris Agreement, in order to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. And the financial industry has picked this up as well, as many organizations are setting net zero targets for their investment portfolios. However, how does a net zero aligned investment decision look like? So today in this episode, we talk about the future through the lens of a clean energy expert, Dr. Sven Taske, who has worked on global climate models for years. And those help investors map out the future towards net zero emissions. So Dr. Sven Taske is an associate professor and research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney with a research focus on energy decarbonization pathways for specific sectors and regions. So he is a world-known expert for his work in renewable energy, including market dynamics and policy analysis. Sven Tuska was a lead author for the IPCC report and a member of the expert review committee for the International Energy Agency World Energy Outlook, and more recently, Mr. Tuska has led the work on the OECM climate model that was commissioned by the UN-convened Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance and the European Climate Foundation. And this is the model we will discuss shortly. Thank you so much, Dr. Tuska, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So to start, your career spans across significant developments in renewable energy. What do you see as the turning points in renewable energy and then maybe starting from the time when you began your research in this industry? Oh, that's quite a long time ago. I mean, I studied engineering um, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and at that time, we had to study um, coal and nuclear engineering, but uh, renewable energy technology were just uh, basically a hobby. So uh, it was additionally... Uh, there was just a small group of engineers who were interested uh, and who uh, worked sort of on top of the normal studies on that. Uh, during that time, and um, I um, grew up at the North Sea coast near the Dutch border, um, a very windy place. Um, solar energy wasn't really an issue for us. Um, so we had uh, wind energy development. And uh, wind energy was basically my start in renewable energy. Um, solar energy came actually quite uh, a bit later. Um, the big sort of milestones for renewable energy from my perspective, my career was first um, in uh, 1991, um, the Germany started uh, feed-in laws, which basically means you are uh, that people who operate and own uh, wind turbines uh, get a guaranteed price per, per kilowatt hour electricity fed into the grid. And that was actually the first um, start of the wind industry. At that time, the wind industry was small. Basically, only um, Denmark, uh, who was a bit uh, ahead of Germany, and uh, Germany and the Netherlands were actually working on it. Um, earlier in the 1970s, um, the U.S., actually started to work on wind energy, 
Ronald Reagan killed that industry in the 80s, and then about 10 years, nothing happened, and the Danes picked it up again. Um, at the same time, solar energy was still extremely expensive and uh, was a very, uh, very much a niche technology. That uh, all changed sort of in, in between 1995 and 2005. And that, in that uh, decade, solar became a bit more viable with uh, many different technology um, developments, with more policies. Um, also, feed-in tariffs um, from uh, 2000 onwards, Germany paid um, almost $2 per kilowatt hour for, for one kilowatt hour, which is currently um, uh, like about 20 times more than the electricity cost from solar. So it was all um, a very slow start. And um, I would say in the past, let's say 10 years, we see that um, solar and wind uh, developed as a main, major, uh, sort of mainstream industry and became the cheapest option for electricity generation. Uh, so if we compare today a new built coal power plant or a new built gas power plant with a new built wind uh, farm or solar farm, solar and wind is cheaper. So um, that is the reason why about 85% um, of all new power plants uh, connected to the grid over the past about five years um, were actually solar and wind. It's simply the, the fact that they are cheaper and um, quicker to build and are independent. They are independent from uh, fuel prices, uh, fuel price fluctuations, which we currently see with a gas price skyrocketing. And uh, that means that once you have invested in solar and wind, and if you operate a wind farm, you can actually rely on the price. You actually know the electricity price in two years, in 10 years, even in 20 years. Um, in, if you operate a gas power plant, you don't even know the price, the generation cost next week because you don't know the gas price. Interesting. So moving from energy to the modeling, you have been doing a lot. Um, so we would need renewable energy, right? To stay in this 1.5 degree zone for the future. Um, and moving then to the One Earth Climate Model, you led the development of the One Earth Climate Model that is providing investors with a, with a global roadmap for decarbonization of key industries. Can you expand on the model that you developed with your research team and why is it different from existing decarbonization models out there? Uh, first, uh, I want to go a step back and um, just say that uh, if we want to stay um, under maximum plus 1.5 degrees temperature rise, we have a carbon budget of 400 gigatons of CO2. Um, that is based on the latest IPCC um, assessment report 6, which has been published in May 2021. And they say 400 gigatons is the carbon budget and we achieved that 1.5 degree target with 67% certainty. So that is basically for us a given. Secondly, um, we also include in our um, model and in our analysis uh, non-energy emissions. Uh, so from land use change, for example, but also from, from chemicals. So um, what we do in our model is we 
um, do backcasting. So that means we have a target of zero emissions in 2050 and work our way backwards to what do we need to do today in order to achieve what we can achieve in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years. I'll give you an example. For example, the electrification of the transport sector um, is extremely important because um, the only way of replacing oil for transport, and oil is usually uh, mainly used in transport uh, for the energy sector, not for electricity generation or for heating. So if we replace that oil, we have to replace it with electricity. The electricity um, needs to come from renewable energy uh, sources in order to be carbon free. And that means that we have an additional electricity demand from electric mobility. That is just from the generation side. And as a rule of thumb, in industrialized country, moving from oil-based transport to electric electricity-based transport doubles roughly the electricity demand. So we not just need to replace the current electricity generation stru structure, which is based um, in many countries on coal and gas, we also need to uh, generate the additional electricity, which almost uh, the demand uh, almost doubles, to generate this additional demand as well with renewable electricity. So that is just from the technical side. Then from the backcasting side, even if we have no political obstacles, we need to uh, factor in planning time for charging stations, for example. We need to uh, factor in that we have actually cars on the road and we can't just take them off the road and replace them tomorrow. So there is a time lag which we have to we have to factor in. And there are other measures which are much quicker to implement. For example, energy efficiency is usually very, very easy to implement and it's much quicker. So what we do in our um, One Earth Climate Model is we, we take all those different aspects into account and try to find an optimal mix between the efficiency measures, which are um, technically possible, which are realistic to implement, and I come to that in a minute, and um, from the generation side to, uh, to change the generation towards renewable energy. I would like to really highlight and stress that there is no either or. Um, is it more important to have energy efficiency or is it more important to have um, renewable energy? It is it's basically the um, two sides of the same coin. We need to do both at the same time. And not, neither energy efficiency is more important than renewables than the other way around. It's both. We need to keep down the, the energy demand uh, in order to generate the electricity or the energy with renewables to decarbonize. At the same time, we also need to make sure that other measures are implemented. So, for example, um, land use change creates emissions. And uh, one of the examples is that the, the severe destruction of the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. We need to stop that. And again, there is no alternative to, um, to this practice 
by, let's say, accelerating renewables. We need to not only have a decarbonized energy system, we also need to have a sustainable uh, agriculture and a, a sustainable forestry in order to um, stop the land use emission and actually get the carbon back into the soil. All those three main measures are equally next to each other. And there is no, this is more important than this. We have to uh, put this together as a package. And this is what we do with the World Earth Climate Model. And could you expand um, on the model more in the sense of what is its key purpose and how can investors, for example, apply this in their own thinking about the future under the circumstances that you just mentioned? So we break sort of that broad concept uh, needs to be broken down to specific groups. And the investment industry, um, they have their own sectors. So, for example, um, a portfolio from a finance institute might be broken down to uh, something which, which is called the global industry categorization standard. So that's a JIGS call. Um, there are two other systems out there. So basically, it says... Everything in that group belongs to a specific industry. So, for example, um, a group 15 or um, 20 um, is part of a material industry. And we basically package everything into that group, what, what's related to energy and greenhouse gas emissions. So we basically tailor make a scenario for a specific industry um, categorized in the sort of in the methodology of the finance industry. And that is the new thing. That is something that the renewable energy or the energy sector hasn't done before. So this is what we do. Um, and then we develop benchmarks saying, okay, uh, right now, let's say one ton of steel um, right now needs X amount of energy unit to produce and X tons of CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions, including other uh, in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, are caused by one, the production of one ton of steel in the year 2022. In the year 2025, um, those values need to go, go down by a certain percentage. And then we give them benchmark for 2030, 2035, 2040, so, and 2050. But 2050 is pretty uh, boring because they're all zero. So um, that means that we can actually give them a, um, a, a set of key performance indicators. And those key performance indicators are vital for banks to actually evaluate an, uh, an asset and uh, put other forms and assets together. And that's what we do. Yeah, and it's very viable. I mean, from our experience, we use these benchmarks also to see how companies based on their own emissions are aligned with the budgets that you are um, mapping for us. Um, maybe going deeper into the data, based on your experience working with the OECM, what would you like to see evolve as it comes to like the climate pathways? Are there data points missing in, in your view? And, and can we improve the accuracy of our models um, or should we rather focus on sort of the usability of these models? How, how do you see sort of the future development of climate models? 
Well, I, I can only speak for myself and for my team. Um, so what we do is we try constantly to develop the model further. Um, we are actually currently working on another iteration. We currently have 16 um, industry sectors and we will step by step uh, have more and more industry sectors. Um, we currently have only global data and for two regions, OECD Europe, which is basically the EU plus Norway and Switzerland and a few other countries and OECD um, North America, which is Canada, the US and Mexico. So we are currently working on um, 11 countries, um, country scenarios. Uh, we are going deeper into other industries and we also expand on infrastructural changes. We uh, basically need to improve our modeling uh, detail in terms of um, the infrastructural needs. So, for example, if, um, if there's a lot of electrification going on in the mobility sector or in, in, in industrial process heat, that means that the energy currently transported via pipelines, by oil gas or gas pipelines, will then be transported over power lines. And that means that the electricity grid needs to expand. Um, even if we are extremely successful with energy efficiency, um, we still need more infrastructure and more cable capacity to transport the energy. All those aspects are um, still not done. Um, we are working on it and we expand step by step. Interesting. And then, um, some of the points you're mentioning will heavily depend on on the politics of the specific regions that you're looking at. How do you take that in account? Also thinking about where I live in the United States, recently there have been some movements coming from the Supreme Court that might suppress some of the progress that we have been making. How, how do you take those kind of maybe sometimes unpredicted forces into account as it comes to the transition to a carbon low world? Well, our 1.5 degree pathways are no predictions. Um, it's uh, a scenario and a scenario basically is a what if analysis. So we, we do not forecast what's happening. I mean, it would be really nice if our pathway uh, would be a forecast and everyone would actually do exactly that. Um, even though I'm really optimistic, I don't think so. So, um, so uh, to cut a long story short, we just say uh, and put together a technical and economic concept, what needs to be done. If that's implemented, it's a different decision, which we unfortunately cannot really influence. Um, I would say that many countries are on a good pathway, some are not. But if you look at the U uh, to the US, for example, uh, there was this, uh, this uh, court decision that the EPA is not allowed to uh, give benchmarks. At the same time, um, over 100 uh, coal power plants have been shut down because they are not economic uh, in the US. So um, there are developments out there which are, I think, positive and um, I don't think that we should give up. Um, sometimes I'm a bit frustrated, but uh, then I just say, okay, uh, we just need to keep going and be positive. And I think policy makers sl slowly but steadily 
um, understand it. And I also think I'm fairly positive that the next generation, the younger generation, um, will hopefully take over more responsible and important political positions. Um, I myself, I turn 56 uh, tomorrow, and uh, that means that um, my generation is currently in a decision-making process. I'm not really happy with my generation, so I hope that the next generation will make it a bit better. That's a, that's a great way to kind of uh, end this conversation. Um, the last question and in that regard is, you know, looking at your entire career and all the research you've been doing, what is your perspective on the future? And, and what do you say is, is the climate change issue that you know, our, our listeners, mostly investors, people in the finance industry should look at the most? I think um, the finance industry, first, I have to say the finance industry really understood the challenge. So it's not that's all just greenwashing. There is, a, there is greenwashing out there, absolutely. But um, there are a lot of people who really want to change and they need benchmarks. And that's that I see that as our job to deliver. Um, what we have to have in mind is that we need to electrify um, the transport system and also process heat and need to uh, produce that additional electricity with renewable electricity. So that is to, to move towards renewable electricity is easy, it's economic, and therefore should be done as fast as possible. And the second thing I really hope, and we are unfortunately not on a good pathway, um, we have to protect all our forests. We really have to protect our forests and our mangroves, and we have to move away from a destructive agricultural uh, industry to a sustainable agriculture industry. And this is as important, not more important, not less important, as important as the decarbonization of the energy sector. And I see that there are movements in this direction. And uh, last but not least, I would say um, a forest is also an ecosystem and not just a carbon sink. Um, let's look at a forest like an ecosystem, let's respect it, and let's increase those ecosystems and that will benefit everyone also, um, not just as a carbon sink, but for the quality of life. Great. Well, that's a very clear message and, um, and a lot to do for, for us and, and future generations. Thank you so much, Fantasco. It was really great having you. I'm wishing you a very good birthday tomorrow. This podcast is brought to you by ESG Book. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>